couple of things uh, real quick before we get started on Romans chapter. We're going to actually start in Romans 15:22. But number one, uh, Thursday night we had our our monthly theology Thursday, and we had Tim Kimmel here speaking about parenting, and it was absolutely incredible. It's it's it was even better than the marijuana one. So. Um, and and uh, that podcast should be up sometime tomorrow. If you weren't able to make it you, and, and you want to know a little bit more about parenting, please uh, download that podcast. I think it'll be really helpful to you. Uh, also, um, a number of you have mentioned it. I know that others of you didn't because um, I, I, maybe you didn't want to embarrass me or whatever, but I know it, it looks like Jackie did some biblical correction to me uh, this last week, punched me in the face or whatever, um, and that's not it. I just, I, I wanted to look even more like Randy Travis's mugshot. That's why I've done this. If you don't know why that's funny, you need to get out your phone right now and search Randy Travis's mugshot. <laughs> Poor guy. Anyway, uh, seriously, what happened was I had mouth surgery on Monday. They did some skin grafting from the roof of my mouth down to my gums. It's actually pretty common surgery if you're an old guy it is, or, or an old gal. It's pretty common surgery. Uh, he said there'd be some bruising, so that's what's going on. There are still stitches in my mouth, but I am a hockey player, so I will preach with stitches in my mouth. So here we go. We've been going through the book of Romans as a church pretty much since uh, the day that Paul wrote the book of Romans, it seems like. Uh, But we are actually near the end, and we have 30 verses that we're going to cover today, starting with 1522. And and what's interesting is is we've we've done parts of Romans where we only did one verse at a time, and now we're going to do 30. And what scares me about doing that, it's, it's one big massive group, which I think is important, and there's a lot of stuff in there that we can sink our teeth into. But one of the things that scares me about doing 30 verses at once is that, is that it might contribute to this feeling that a lot of people have that once you get to this point in the book of Romans, it's really not that important. It's just Paul doing some housekeeping stuff and some meaningless greetings. And I need to tell you that is absolutely not true at all. I had a very difficult time cutting this down uh, to four. 40 minutes because I have a burn about so many of the issues that are brought up uh, in this passage. This is some really good stuff. Because it's 30 verses, though, I'm not going to work through the text and then do application. Instead, I'm going to do it at the same time. So that'll be a little bit different than what we normally do. As we work through and explain the text, we'll also do our application. And here is the big idea for these 30 verses. And, and if you get nothing else out of today, if you walk out of here with this, we've done our job and that's a win for us. Here's the big idea. The normal Christian life is naturally supernatural. The normal Christian life is naturally supernatural. In other words, it is only natural. Let's take Sean Myers, for instance. It is only natural that Christians, doing what they are called by God to do, will do it under the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that is true for all of us. It's not just true for a church planter. It's true for any of us who know Christ. We will live the normal Christian life in a naturally supernatural way. And so what I want to do is... start by going through uh, that um, there's two paragraphs in chapter 15 we have not done yet. Uh, We left off with verse 21 last time. So I'm going to start with 22 and go through 29. We'll explain and apply that and then we'll do that last last paragraph and then we'll do the, uh, the, the verses that Amy read for us. So here we go. Paul writes in verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered 
from coming to you. He's wanted to uh, visit Rome, but the reason he has had such a hard time visiting Rome is because he is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles and there was so much work for him to do in those other areas outside of Rome, uh, between essentially between Rome and Jerusalem, that he was busy doing that. But now he'll say that his work in this region is, is done, which we'll explain a little bit uh, later. He says in verse 23, but now since I no longer have any room to work in these regions and since I have long for many years to come to you. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. His plan is not just to go to Rome and then hang out uh, because the gospel is already being spread there. He just wants to be encouraged by them and be ministered to them uh, by them and to minister to them. But then really his big push is to go into Spain. Spain has been a part of the Roman Empire for, for quite some time now, but yet it was still fairly new to the gospel and he knew that there was, there was opportunity to, to pr- proclaim the gospel and do his work in Spain. So that's why he wanted to go there and maybe use Rome as a staging area. Verse 25, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints for Macedonia, Achaia, and Achaia have been pleased to make uh, some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Macedonia and Achaia are large regions in which individual churches, such as Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, those churches, uh, were giving money to Paul as he was going around to visit them in order to take to Jerusalem. Why did the mother church in Jerusalem, the first church of the Christian faith, why did they need money? We know from history that at the time Jerusalem was going through a famine and and a tremendous economic downturn that was similar to the depression of the 1930s, whereas all of these other areas were still doing economically well. So Paul knew that it would be a good idea if he went around and collected an offering for the Jerusalem church to try to help them get through these tough uh, economic times. Verse 27 for they were pleased to do it. These churches were pleased to give money and indeed they owe it to them. We're going to unpack that. Why would they owe it to them? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, the, the, the Jewish Christians' spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in their material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And then verse 29 is probably my biggest burn in this entire passage. I'll spend a lot of time on it and then I'll come back to it at the end. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So, Paul does get very personal and very pragmatic in this section. It's really, really interesting because what's happening is Paul is making plans and reviewing what's been happening in his ministry and it's exactly what you and I also do, right? We make plans, we review things, we talk to people, and especially around this time, we're starting to make those plans, right? It's Christmas is coming, the end of the year is coming, and so we're making plans and we're talking about it. Those of us who are bound a little bit by the, um, the school calendar also uh, tend to do this around May. We're making plans for the summer and stuff. So we review, we plan, and we tell others about it. It's very normal. And Paul says that, says that he's been hindered from coming, but now he has no more room to work where he has been. And a lot of people look at that and go, oh, really, Paul? Really? Everybody in all of those regions, every last person has come to know Christ, every person is saved. And the answer to that, of course, is certainly not. But Paul has done his job in those areas. And that's really important to understand. God gifts and wires and calls every one of us separately to do different things. We are a body with many different members. We are diverse. Paul's gift is to go into an area and start a work and then get it sustainable and then train leaders and leave it for them to sustain it. 
And so he's done all of that. It's not that everybody's saved, but those churches are going now fine. And so now he's moving on to a place where the gospel desperately needs to be proclaimed uh, in, kind of a new, uh, uh, in kind of a new way. And so Paul's looking at this and he's saying, Spain would be a great place for me to go. It's new to the gospel. And I can't, it's not in the text, but I also imagine as a tent maker, you know, Paul was a tent maker. He was bivocational. And so as a tent maker, he might be thinking, and there's a, probably a pretty good market for tents in Spain too so I'll be able to sustain my ministry uh, that way. And then verse 27, I mentioned we were going to unpack that. That creates some tension. Paul says that because the Gentiles have benefited from the Jewish chosenness. This is essentially what he's saying. God chose the, the, the nation of Israel. He chose the Jews to work through. He, they, they were their chosen people. The Messiah came from the line of Jews, came from Abraham, came from King David. Because they are the spiritual parents of this entire Christian movement, if you want to call it that, the Gentiles who are not part of the chosen, who are now chosen in Christ, have benefited from their ministry and their existence. And so in that respect, they owe them a part of their wealth when they're in trouble. So really what it is, is an act of tribute. It's an act of thanks. It's an act of respect and love. And in a sense, the Gentiles owe their spiritual life to the Jews. And so in gratitude and as an act of grace, they want to express that that um, appreciation. Understand, the debt that they owe was not a legal debt or a moral debt, but it was a debt of gratitude. Now, I know that the reason I know this because I've studied it and I've talked to people about it. Some people say, but that verse sounds really transactional. It sounds quid pro quo, this for that. It sounds like an obligation. Is the Christian faith really uh, built on transactions and obligations? And the answer to that overall is no. There is we could argue, and I would argue even, there's a transaction that takes place at the cross where Jesus trades his perfection and his righteousness and his justiceness, uh, his, just, uh, his justification for our sin. There's that, and we're glad for that transaction. There's also the idea that, that Jesus trades his life for ours, and that's, that, you could argue that's a transaction, but I would also argue that undergirding all of that is the grace of God. He's doing this out of the grace that he has for us the unmerited favor that he feels towards us because he loves us so much. And so the gospel is graceful. The gospel is filled with grace. And that's really important to understand. But does that therefore let us off the hook for gratitude? Of course not. Genuine gratitude is one of the hallmarks of those who know Jesus. This offering also serves, in a sense, to unite the Gentiles and the Jews. It serves to unite the Gentiles and the Jews. There was always, Paul even talks about it in the book of Romans, there was always this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the, the Jews, because they were, they were the chosen people of God, felt like the Gentiles, even though they were saved, were still second-class citizens. And they were upset about the Gentiles trying to lead the church at Rome. So there were some, some challenges there. And so now they're collecting money and Paul is bringing it to them. Paul, a Jew, is bringing this money from the Gentiles. Have you ever noticed how an adversary can become an advocate when charity is shown? You ever notice that? Now that's not our first inclination to show charity to our adversary. 
But very often, when we do show that charity, that adversary suddenly becomes an advocate. And that's exactly what has happened here. And by charity, I want to make sure we understand this. By charity, I don't necessarily mean just monetary infusion, although that's exactly what's going on here. But charity encompasses, encompasses so much more than just monetary infusion. It can mean many things. It can mean the right attitude. It can mean inclusion. It can mean compassion. It can mean fellowship. It can mean patronage and we'll look at that word patronage a little bit more later and then consider the irony of verse 29 Uh, this this whole passage is filled with irony but verse 29 also has quite a bit and I want to spend some time here he writes I know that when I come to you I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ if you know the story of what happens to Paul after he gets to Jerusalem, you know that his carefully laid plans went awry. So let me ask you this question. How many times have you made very carefully, made, uh, made very careful plans and those plans went awry? Has that ever happened to anybody in here? It's happened to all of us. And here's what we tend to do when our plans, when our scripts, uh, social scientists actually call them scripts. We have scripts in our mind for how things are supposed to work out. And when these scripts don't go exactly as we have scripted them, what happens? We get angry and we begin to blame. We start looking for something or someone to blame. And very often, the one that gets blamed is God. Paul went to Jerusalem and not according to plan, he delivered, he delivered the gift. That was according to plan. But then after that, all of his plans went awry. He nearly got killed. A mob nearly killed him. Then he was arrested by the authorities and put on trial unfairly. And then he was taken to Rome in chains as a prisoner. So his plans definitely went awry. You can read about this in Acts chapters 25 through 28, the end of, uh, of the book of Acts. But though Paul went to Rome in chains as a prisoner, if you were to go to him in prison in Rome and ask him, did you still come under the full blessing of Jesus? He would say, not only that, but it was a fuller and better blessing that I came uh, under uh, under these conditions in chains and as a prisoner. And the reason for that is because his opportunity to share the gospel in that situation was way more powerful and way more influential. He was literally in Caesar's household an extension of Caesar's household as a prisoner. And as such, he was constantly on a daily basis encountering all of the movers and shakers in Rome, all of the important people and people of the military who then were able to take the gospel message out to so many more people. It's like you could say this, God is a mad scientist. He figured this all out so that it was actually better. So Paul would say yes, and we know from his letters from prison, he said, this has actually worked out better for me that I am actually in prison. But even more to the point, we also know he knows that he went under the blessing of God because in verse 32, which I'm going to read in just a second, uh, he was in the midst of God's will as he went to Rome. The blessing, understand this, this is what you and I have to get. The blessing is because it's what God wants, not because our circumstances are so spiffy and keno. You and I as human beings, though, we want nice, easy circumstances. God tends to work through things that are a little bit more challenging. And the blessing is the gospel at work in Paul's life regardless of the circumstances. And so we would say Paul is naturally living the Christian life supernaturally 
by the power of the Spirit. It's a couple of guys, you know, I'm, in, I'm involved in prison ministry. There's a bunch of guys that I work with in prison, but two in particular, we have their artwork out in the, in the lobbies. I've been working with them for more than a decade now. One of them is um, serving a 17-year sentence, and he has 16 months to go. Uh, the other one is serving 24 years, and he has eight years to go. I consider them very, very good friends, and, and I'm amazed at how much they've ministered to me. Now, they're in prison down in Florence. This is not a trick question. Would they rather not be in prison? Yes, of course they would. Yet at the same time, they have consistently told me for more than 10 years that they know that they have the full favor and blessing of God while they've been in prison. And as long as God has them there, they know that it's under the blessing of Jesus Christ because of the gospel work that they have been able to do down there in Florence. Florence is actually the, 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 uh, the units and the complex that they've been, ser- they've been serving their time in. Those are different places because those two guys have been down there. And so they've taken that ministry and they've done something with it. And they, are, they, they, they refuse to whine, but rather they supernaturally work towards the glory of God. So, again, I ask you, have you ever made plans that don't work out? In the midst of those plans that don't work out, God still protects us and provides for us, even though we don't think he does. We look at that stuff and we go, there's no way he's protecting me or providing for me right now. I don't like this, but he does. And he even blesses in the midst of that, regardless of our circumstances. There's a little PS to this story too. Uh, Some people say, well, Paul never got to Spain. That's a shame. But in fact, we know from history that many of those people that he ministered to in prison in Rome then took the gospel message to Spain on their own. These These were Roman important people and military people. They went to Spain and they took the gospel there. We know that. So the message still went there. Now, verses 30 through 33, that last paragraph of 15, he writes... I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Verse 30. Here's another burn for me. He says, I want you to strive together with me in your prayers on my behalf. That Greek word strive together is a word that I've been trying for three weeks to learn how to pronounce and I'm going to try it again. I'm going to butcher it, but I want you to hear it. It's sun agonazomia. Sun agonazomia. That's the best I've ever said it. Amen. Yes. Okay. Soon, the, pre- the Greek prefix soon means with or together. Agonazomia is where we get the word agonize from. So I want you to agonize with me in prayer. And here's what you need to know, my brothers and sisters of Arcadia, Prayer is not all muffins and meadows. It's not all just getting together and having a little coffee. Let's pray about fashion or whatever it is. It's not that. Now, there are some things that we do need to pray for that are sort of pedestrian and run-of-the-mill, and we need to pray for those things. But most of the time, the vast majority of prayer should be about, here you go. What an illustration. Most of the time, our prayer should be about the intense spiritual battles that we are all going through. Read Ephesians 6, starting at 11 for the rest of the, uh, of the book. Read that and you will see 
that we are constantly in these spiritual battles whether we realize it or not. Remember in the garden when Satan came to Eve, he did not come at her with a full frontal attack. Rather, he came at her from the side just whispering in her ear, you don't even realize half the time that you're in a spiritual battle. We need the armor of God all the time and we need to be praying about that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for work and we shouldn't pray for our relationships and we shouldn't pray for healing and we shouldn't pray for school and we, and we shouldn't pray for the Cardinals to go to eight and one today. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, okay, yeah, there, there you go. All right, we can still pray for all those things and we should pray for those things, but I am saying that our foremost prayers need to be that God's will would reign in our lives, whatever the circumstances are, and that we need to pray that the church would prevail in its mission and that the gospel would be proclaimed and that people would be saved and, and that... And and that Jesus would come again. You know, we're getting ready to go into Advent. I can't wait. Advent means the coming and we're looking for the second coming of Jesus and we should be praying that he would come. And in the midst of those prayers, it's going to be agonizing sometime and we should agonize and wrestle. It's going to be difficult and necessary and constant. I feel a little bit like Sean Myers this morning. I'm actually yelling. This is awesome. The brother has worn off on me. All right. Now, consider verse 31. He says, I want to be delivered from the unbelievers in Jerusalem. Who are the unbelievers? Here's more irony for you. The unbelievers are religious, spiritual, moral people. They're people who believe that they are good and that they are doing God's work, but they're not. Instead, like today, they are people who believe the easy lies that Satan lays on them. That They believe that what they are doing is good, but it's actually going against everything that God is trying to do. So here's what Paul is saying in these four verses, 30 through 33. He's looking for two results. Number one, he wants those who are resisting the gospel to be saved. What is the best way to be delivered from unbelievers? it would be for them to believe the gospel. So he's looking for them to be saved. And then the second thing he's looking for is that his gift, his ministry to the church at Jerusalem would be acceptable to those who are in Jerusalem. Now that's kind of an, <clears throat> that's kind of an interesting thing because you go, well, who wouldn't accept money? I'll get to that in just a second. But you think about these two things that he's praying for and that he wants results in. It's what any pastor would pray for. It's what any Christian would pray for who is being led by the Holy Spirit because this is important stuff. But there is some debate on how well these two prayers were answered. Paul was rescued from the unbelievers. We know that from the story in Acts. But it was because he was arrested. He was rescued by being arrested. Let me ask you this question and I really want you to think about it. Has God ever protected you in a clearly unconventional way? Do you realize in the midst of that unconventionality that God, God is protecting you? Most of the time, no. When we're in the middle of God protecting us in an unconventional way, what are we doing? We're whining, we're complaining. Why me? Why is this happening? And then maybe a little bit later, we kind of look back on it and the Holy Spirit uh, opens our eyes and we go, oh, God was protecting me in the midst of that. That worked out much better. No one wants to be arrested. Yet had he not been arrested, he would have been killed by this mob. But the reason he got arrested, here's what's more irony. Here's the reason he got arrested. It's because the gospel was being proclaimed and people were coming to Jesus. That's why he got arrested. People didn't like that. 
And so his ministry was effective. That's good. But then he had to leave Rome in chains almost immediately, which is not much good to the saints who are in Jerusalem. It's not what he planned, but at least he still got there with the gift. He was able to deliver the gift, which was sorely needed, and that is all very good. And let me just say a word on that. I promised I would. Paul wanted prayer that the gift would be acceptable. Do we really need to pray that people are going to accept money from us? Is that a prayer we need to have? Sometimes. Because people are prideful. You ever notice that? And he was worried that the Jews in Jerusalem might be a little bit too prideful to be able to take money from Gentile Christians. So that was on his radar, but it worked out. So here's what we know. Paul's prayers were answered. Yes, they were. They were not answered in the way that he was planning for them to be answered, but they were answered, and they were answered even better than he had ever expected. And that is a wonderful lesson for you and me. We need to hear that lesson. So then we move on to Verses 1 through 16. I'm not going to reread those except for the first two verses because Amy has already read them better than I can read them. I I will point out just as a side note, look at verse 15. There's a guy there named Philologus. That's really important. That helps you to know that Sesame Street was actually in the Bible. So... um, (laughs) Now, now this part of the letter is really personal, right? I mean, now he's greeting people. All these people and all these feelings. We need to know that Paul was a person with relationships and feelings and not just a church institution. How often do we refer to Paul as the church the institution of Paul? Paul was a great church institution. Well, maybe so, but he was also a person that had relationships and feelings and love and compassion. And you might say, well, how did Paul know all these people? He'd never even been to Rome. Well, he'd been doing ministry for 25 years all over that section of the world. He had run into some of them during that ministry and he knew some of them by reputation as well. And so then we consider these first two verses. I want to talk about the word patron in there. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, Uh, the the scholarly consensus is that Phoebe was delivering the letter to the church at Rome on behalf of Paul. That you may welcome her in the Lord and in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Arcadia, we need more patrons. We need more patrons everywhere. The word in the Greek means a friend, a protector, a provider, a benefactor, and one who freely gives aid. And don't let that word benefactor fool you. When you and I hear the word benefactor, we tend to think about just money. But a patron gives way more than money. They may be giving money, but they give way more than money. They give their time. They suffer with people. They give their energy. They advocate for people and champion them. And they give them love. And let me tell you something. The art world needs more patrons. We need, we need to patronize art in order to allow younger artists to develop their skill to the point that it makes a difference. I've, I've always tried to be a patron to the music industry and to young musicians because although I can't do music, I love music and I understand the impact that good music has on people. And so I've always tried to be a patron to young musicians who are trying to get ahead. We also need to be a patron to young preachers, young pastors, and young leaders. Arcadia, we are going to be patrons to Redemption Peoria. Amen? That was not very exciting. 
You think about that, pray about that, okay? And I'll move on, all right? Now look at the number of women Paul mentions in this section of the letter too. The, the fact that Paul even mentions one woman, let alone several, was absolutely aberrant for their culture. The only way a man writing a letter in that culture would ever mention a woman was because there was an official or a legal reason to do it. And there is none here. He's just friends with these people. He just likes these people. Paul mentions these women as friends and as co-workers and as colleagues. And he does so with great respect and affection. By the way, he also mentions that one couple that was with him in prison. He mentions them. They were literally in prison with him. You ever want to get close to somebody? Go to prison with them. That'll get you really close. You get close to people that you're in prison with. And I say this because Paul has long been accused by people, obviously people outside of the church, but what really breaks my heart is that people even inside of the church have long accused Paul of being a chauvinist and a misogynist. It's just not true. And let me just say this for you. If you're one of those people who's sitting there going, Paul was just a jerk. He didn't like women. He's a messiah. Let me just say this to you. It's really easy to make history say whatever you want when you don't know the history and you lay your cultural lens over that history. Paul loved. He's, he's one of the main reasons we understand love from Scripture. Additionally, Paul describes many of these women as working for the gospel to the point of exhaustion. That is, that is a declaration of respect and awe. And by the way, it might, it might speak to us about how we are to work for the gospel too. One other thing about this list of names, and, and again it has uh, to do with the charges that some have made against Paul. You know, this idea that Paul is a hard-edged cerebral guy with not, with, and not much of a relational guy that you'd want to hang out with. Really? Does that sound like somebody you wouldn't want to hang out with? What about all these? He, he remembers these people clearly with love and compassion and respect. It, it's like a redemption community. It's like an RC here. What about Timothy? He writes to Timothy and he calls him my beloved son. Timothy was not his biological son. They didn't share any DNA. But he felt like his, his spiritual father. And there was a closeness there and an intimacy there that, that you just can't understand without, the, without being a, a gospel-centered person. This is a guy who loves. We've been talking about love since we started chapter 12. Paul is, is not a cerebrally indifferent snoot, but he's a guy who genuinely loves. Do you genuinely love others by the power of the Holy Spirit? Verse 16, last verse I'll deal with. Um, I tried to avoid this verse, but when I went to the collective, uh, it was clear that I needed to mention it. Greet one another with a holy kiss. A little awkward, okay? I'm not really good at all this uh, greeting stuff, and, but I have to deal with it. So it's holy kiss time. I want everybody to stand. No, I'm kidding. I'm, kidding. I'm glad you knew I was kidding. That's really good. We're getting to know each other. That's good, okay. But for some people, this is really awkward. But interestingly enough, theologically, for others, it's, it's a hill to die on. Some people believe that this is the only proper reverent way that we can greet one another in the Lord even today. I would argue that, that this is really a non, one of those non-essential things that, is, that changes with culture. Back then, the holy kiss was a common greeting, even outside of the church. You gave people kisses. There's, there's cultures today where you go and you, you do the kiss. You exchange uh, kisses. Today, it seems like in the United States, though, we do other things. We shake hands. We hug. We fist bump. If you're a guy, you can, you can do a greeting with just nodding. I'm really good at that. I just greeted you. 
I just greeted y'all. Could you greet me back? Yeah, okay, that's cool. That, that was really fun, all right? But even that creates some awkwardness. I'm out there greeting people. I'm shaking hands. I'm doing the man hug and somebody might kiss me. Okay, so I was, let me tell you something. I was so jealous two weeks ago when Warren had a video of the elephants. So I said, I got to have a video. So here's Jerry Seinfeld. So when it comes to the greet one another times in church, we just don't know sometimes. We don't know. Including that whole man hug thing. I mean, we have developed in the last 15 years a culture of man hugs, right? Right, guys? You guys know instinctively what I'm talking about. There are no written instructions for this, but every one of us knows that it's the thumb shake, it's the touching of the two shoulders, and one or two pats on the back, then the fast release. That's the man hug. Everybody, every man instinctively knows that. And if you pat three times, ooh, that is icky. Don't pat three times, I'm telling you. It's awkward. One guy's trying to pull away. The other one isn't. Okay. I'll tell you though, good arguments have been made about the holy kiss being a a fairly specific greeting to the church. It has a long and valued place and tradition in the the church and that we should respect it today. And in fact, it's the holy kiss that that is one view for the catalyst of the greet one another times that we have in, in most churches. It's that time when some of us are really excited we get to greet one another, but it's actually awkward for other people. We've seen church surveys that say that the worst thing a church can do for a new person in the church is do the greet one another thing. That's, they hate that more than anything. You can have weapons in your children ministry, but if you greet one another during church, they're mad about that, okay? That's what they're upset about because it's a... But here's one thing I think you should remember. It's, this is interesting to me. There's a holy kiss and then there's a Judas kiss, right? You ever heard of the Judas kiss? Somebody who's kissing you and going to betray you. The odd thing about that is that they are functionally the same. You see how weird this is? So all that to say, you're on your own for your greetings. I'm not going to instruct you in that. And I admit, I, I've told you this before. I'm not much of a hug or a kiss guy unless it's Jackie, but I am an excellent nodder. I nod very well, okay? Now, it doesn't mean I won't hug you or kiss you. That's fine. I want to close by going back to the full blessing of Jesus at verse 29. I've been talking about how ironic this passage is. This is the most ironic thing in this passage right here. How could anyone ever say that being crucified is a full blessing? It makes no sense. But it does make sense to Jesus. And Jesus would tell you he was under the full blessing of the Father when he went to the cross. It was for the joy of our salvation, Scripture says, that he went to the cross. He knew that this would be the ultimate blessing that he was trading his perfection for our sinfulness so that we could be made righteous and justified before God. When God looks at you and me, even now in our sin, he looks at us as thoroughly righteous and justified. That is a full blessing. And it was for Jesus. Jesus knows without the crucifixion, there's no resurrection. 
the thing that gives us life, the things that gives us victory over Satan, sin, and death. That was a full blessing, not just for Jesus, but for us as well. And without the resurrection, we live in vain. I want to, uh, my benediction and my closing prayer today is going to be reading scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first 20 verses. And as, and as I read it, I, I want, like we did this summer with, with, when we did the Old Testament thing, I want everybody to stand who can. Please stand in reverence for God's word as we read this. This is, some people have described these 20 verses as the gospel in the nutshell. The gospel in a nutshell. Listen closely and, and, and rejoice in the salvation that we have because of the resurrection. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he goes on later to explain what that means. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. They've passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is, that is with me. Paul naturally lives the Christian life in a supernatural way. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is, is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrep- misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, raised, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are the most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. That is the gospel. It is for you. Come to Jesus if you haven't. And and live in Christ if you are in Christ.